All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. It's always fun to have people here right at the beginning. I know some others come in after we get started, but that's okay. Thanks for being here right at the start. Let's pray as we begin today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for showing us, for opening our eyes. Lord, you have called us to hold fast to it, to contend for it. And Lord, thank you for the faithful men and women who've come before us to do that. Lord, as we study more into church history today, I pray that it would be encouraging, instructive, convicting, and help me be able to explain it well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Well, we are proceeding onward today in our newly extended Church History 101 course on the early church. If you remember, in the second half of the course, we have intended, it's been my intention, to have us meet notable church leaders from the first four centuries and learn about their legacies, the things they've passed on, both the good and the bad, for us today and the church throughout the centuries. We've met the Apostolic Fathers already. They were the fathers of the first going into the second century, the ones right with and after the apostles. Then we met last week a group from the second and third centuries. These were known as the second century apologists and the polemical fathers. Now, we're soon going to meet the 4th century fathers, and they would be the ones who would have the greatest impact on Christianity beyond the early period. So we'll spend a decent amount of time with them. But before we get there, I want to wrap up our discussion, or I not only want to wrap up our discussion on the polemical fathers by talking about one more, one last person from that group, but I also want to return to two of the issues that came up even in last week's lesson especially the question, what is the proper way for Christians to engage with an unbelieving culture? I hope you've been thinking about that question. Uh, As it came up last week, start to formulate an answer in your own minds about what is a proper biblical way to engage. I do want to provide you some guidance to that question at the end of our class. But I also want to talk about one of the issues that has come into the church from engagement with world culture, and that is the allegorical hermeneutic treating things in the Bible as, or assuming things in the Bible are symbolic or allegorical. Last week, I alerted you to the dangers of using the allegorical hermeneutic for interpreting the Bible. And most, if not all of you, would agree that you should not use the allegorical hermeneutic as your approach to the scriptures. But here's the question that I want us to consider today. Even if you reject the allegorical hermeneutic as unjustified and dangerous, do you in fact still use it? when it comes to certain sections of the Bible. We might surprise ourselves in this area. So this is a bit of a special lesson today in our Church History 101 course, looking at origin, allegory, and culture. I alluded to the man origin last week. He's our last figure, our last major figure in the group of polemical fathers. So let's start by getting to know this controversial man, origin. He's going from the 2nd century into the 3rd century, considered to be one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers of the early church, if not the most brilliant. His brilliance sometimes got him into trouble. <laughs> As Professor Nathan Busnitz at the Master's Seminary notes, when Origen was right, he was brilliantly right. But when he was wrong, he was abysmally wrong, as we'll see. Origen's father was a learned man and a devout Christian, But his father was arrested and beheaded during a wave of Roman persecution under the emperor Septimius Severus. Allegedly, young Origen was almost martyred himself as a young 
man, he sought to be executed alongside his father. He wanted to turn himself in. But his mother shrewdly hid all of Origen's clothes so that he was not willing to go out there naked. And he survived. But after Origen's father's death and the seizure of the family's property by the Roman government, Origen became an ascetic and a student at Alexandria's catechetical school likely learning under Clement of Alexandria, who was one of the men that we met last week. Now, Origen soon took over as one of the teachers in this Christian school, and he was later appointed a priest, remember that just means presbyter, an elder, in a church at Caesarea in Palestine. Origen would consider, continue to do a lot of traveling, though, even after being ordained. Now, besides preaching and teaching Christianity, Origen taught physics, metaphysics, dialectics, and ethics. He was an incredibly prolific writer and was supported by certain wealthy Christians. He was patronized. That enabled him to do so much of this scholarly work. One quote I heard about Origen is that he wrote more in his lifetime than most men read. He was truly a very talented person. Now, Origen lives up to his title as polemical father as he was frequently called upon to write against heretical groups facing Christianity. In fact, some of Origen's strongest supporters were former heretics that Origen had brought back into Orthodox Christianity. Now, in terms of surviving works, we have several. I've listed them on the slide. We have the Hexapla, which is the Old Testament in six different translations. In Hebrew... Hebrew and Greek letters, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then three other Greek translations, all put together by origin in one document. He also wrote De Principis, which is translated on the first principles, and some consider this to be the first attempt at a systematic theology, which would make origin the father of systematic theology, something very useful for the church. There's a work called On Prayer, a work called Against Celsus, a multi-volume apologetic against a particular secular philosopher. We have a few letters from Origen, and then we have his commentaries on the book of John and part of his commentary on Matthew. Now, this is just what survives. Origen wrote much more than this. Now, let's talk about particularly notable legacies from Origen. You could say that his first pursuit of a systematic, systematic theology is a legacy that we've inherited and a positive one. But within that is another legacy from Origen that is actually negative, and that is Origen's heretical speculations. Some of what Origen suggested in his systematic theology, the Principes, is, we have to admit, outright heresy, including ideas like the following. Pre-existence of souls. Origen speculated that all souls existed before the world began and enjoyed intimate fellowship with God. These souls, though, rebelled and fell away. And the degree of their fall, Origen speculated, God determined would result in the states, their particular states in the created world. Those souls that fell the worst, that fell the most, became demons. And those souls who fell a little bit less, they came into the world as humans. 
Until, and you keep going up the different levels and origin speculation, until you get to the one soul who didn't fall at all in appreciation of the glory of God, and that soul became the Son of God. Now, that's definitely not what the Scripture teaches, but something that he presented in his work. Another idea from origin was universal salvation. Origen suggested that the various pre-existent souls that he was thinking about, <clears throat> there would be a restoration of all these souls back to harmony one day with the Father. And where did he get that idea from? Well, he seized on phrases in the New Testament like 1 Corinthians 15, 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, When all things are subjected to him, that is, Jesus Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, Origen frequently talks about this future restoration where every soul is made one with God again, God being all in all. That also is not scriptural. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is way out there. And then one other idea was purgatory and or reincarnation. Because if you have all these pre-existent souls that are going to have to somehow find their way back to God, and some of them clearly don't believe in God, well, something has to happen to bring them back, even after they die. To accomplish universal salvation, God, origin speculated, might need to further refine some souls beyond what they experience in their earthly lifetime. Perhaps they will need several lifetimes in a different world, or a better world, or a worse world. Eventually, however, Origen speculated that all souls will be brought back to oneness and appreciation with the Father. Now, by way of example, let me show you an excerpt of Origen's systematic theology, De Principis. We'll pick up a piece of Book 2, Chapter 3, Paragraph 7, which is near the end of the chapter where he summarized his previous arguments, even some things related to the ideas I just presented to you. Here's origin. Having sketched then, so far as we could understand, these three opinions regarding the end of all things and the supreme blessedness, blessedness, let each one of our readers determine for himself with care and diligence whether any one of them can be approved and adopted. Speaking of one theory about the end of all things, these unpurified souls, after their apprehension and their chastisement for the offenses which they have undergone by way of purgation, may, after having fulfilled and discharged every obligation, deserve a habitation in the land that is heaven, while those who have been obedient to the word of God and have henceforth by their obedience shown themselves capable of wisdom are said to deserve the kingdom of that heaven or heavens. For it is called a descent to this earth, but an exaltation to that which is on high. In this way, therefore, does a sort of road seem to be opened up by the departure of the saints from that earth to those heavens, so that they do not much appear to abide in that land as to inhabit it with an intention, namely, to pass on to the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. When they have reached that degree of perfection also. Now, I know some of the, that language is a little bit hard to follow, but he's presenting something that sounds like purgatory. There will be souls that depart, they'll be refined, they'll be perfected. Even the good souls will go to another land temporarily until they're totally perfected, and they'll go to the final kingdom. Now, that's 
heresy. <laughs> that's, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. But did you notice how this excerpted section begins? What does he call on his readers to do? It says, these things that I've written, let the readers determine for themselves whether any of these things can be accepted or adopted as truth. Which is kind of clever. It means that Origen is not being dogmatic about these speculations. He's not saying they're true. He's just saying, here's an idea. Why don't you decide for yourself whether you think it's true or fits with the scripture? And this is the thing with Origen. He had these incredible heretical speculations, but he never said they were true. They were just things that he thought were interesting to consider. And for this this reason, some people really didn't like Origen at that time, and for other reasons. But it was hard to call him a heretic, because he he would teach sound doctrine, he would fight against heresy, and then he'd speculate on these weird things. So Origen, you couldn't say he was a heretic, or at least people didn't at that time, but later generations, they definitely did. In one of the later ecumenical councils, which we've actually talked about, Constantinople II, one of the minor conclusions of that council was that Origen and his followers were heretical and anathematized. Let Origen be damned to hell, that council determined. This is why today, even in the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, though they look back to Origen with respect, they do not consider him a saint. Now, of course, that designation doesn't really mean much, but it does show what they think about Origen. Despite Origen's hesitancy to assert his heretical speculations as dogma, however, others after Origen would pick up some of these ideas about universal salvation, purgatory, and they would assert them as dogma. So this is an unfortunate legacy from Origen. Origen's other important legacy for us to consider is this popularization of the allegorical hermeneutic. Origen studied in Alexandria, even under Clement of Alexandria. He taught at Alexandria, and he was clearly a fan of Greek culture and philosophy. So that meant, or that very quickly led to, Origen becoming a fan and practitioner of that very Greek style of interpreting the Bible. Moreover, because Origen was considered to be so brilliant, because he was an important teacher and a prolific writer, he ended up greatly popularizing this allegorical style of interpretation among Christians, especially among his students and other church leaders. Here's what Nick Needham, who's a Scottish Christian historian, senior pastor at Inverness Reformed Baptist Church, says about Origen's hermeneutic in his book, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. This is volume one on the early church. Origen was a controversial figure in his own lifetime, and has continued to be so. On the one hand, few Christian leaders from the patristic age can compare with Origen for his noble, humble, gentle character, for his sheer depth and breadth of knowledge, both of Christian theology and pagan philosophy. On the other hand, Origen's own theology gave rise to the most fierce disputes, He claimed that the Bible alone, not Plato or any pagan philosopher, was inspired, and that the Bible must be the basis of all Christian thinking, 
But in fact, Platonism greatly shaped and colored Origen's whole outlook. When he interpreted the Bible, he said it has three levels of meaning, which he called the body, the literal meaning, the soul, the moral or ethical meaning, and the spirit, the spiritual meaning. This scheme of interpretation sprang out of Origen's threefold view of the human nature as body, soul, and spirit, a view which may itself be rooted in Platonistic philosophy. Origen regarded the literal meaning of the Bible as less important than its moral or spiritual meaning. This enabled him to build up his own theology in a way that did not tie it too closely to a literal understanding of the text. You can see how these things kind of fit together, right? You have these heretical speculations. You're like, where did you get that from? Well, it's connected with this symbolic allegorical hermeneutic. We can take things from the Bible that seem to literally be talking about one thing, and you can make them talk about something else. Now, does this mean that everything that Origen said was heresy? Certainly not. As we've seen, even those who frequently use the allegorical, allegorical hermeneutic, both in the early church and today, they often affirm the true gospel. They can teach sound doctrine. But again, why is the allegorical hermeneutic so dangerous? Yeah, Mark. That's right. The allegorical hermeneutic makes the interpreter ultimately the one who decides what something means rather than God in the text. It's a prescription for eisegesis. You force meaning into the text rather than allow the text to just speak for itself. You draw the meaning out of the text. To allegorize, to spiritualize, that's the way it's sometimes called, a passage, it seems very deep, very intellectual, even very pious. To say, for instance, the bread of the Lord's Supper, it represents the Old Testament. And the wine, it represents the New Testament. See? These are symbols in this great rite of an even deeper theological reality. That sounds deep, intellectual, pious. Or, this is more common today, I find Christ in every passage. Here, look. Christ is represented in the dove of Noah. Or here, the crucifixion is represented in the story of the fiery furnace. That sounds very spiritual, very deep. But this style of interpretation has no way to verify the claims of the interpreter. What ends up happening is we only obscure and compromise the intentions of the original author. Suddenly, all you're concerned about is this deeper meaning. You don't care about the surface-level meaning, the basic meaning, the literal meaning. And though it doesn't always lead to error, it many times does. Over time, this style of hermeneutic will inevitably lead to error, and it will prevent Christians, even us, from experiencing the joy of the Scriptures, the benefit of the Scriptures as originally intended by God. But what's really profound is that we, can affirm the dangers of the allegorical hermeneutic. We can condemn it. We can say we want nothing to do with it. But we can practice it ourselves when it comes to certain parts of the Bible. Consider John Calvin. Love this guy. Mark was talking about him a few weeks ago. Famous reformer of the 1500s. He decried the allegorical hermeneutic as a great tragedy. 
Listen to what he said. This is Calvin. The error of allegory has been the source of many evils. Not only did it open the way for the adulteration of the natural meaning of Scripture, but also set up boldness in allegorizing as the chief exegetical virtue. We must entirely reject the allegories of Origen and of others like him, which Satan, with the deepest subtlety, has endeavored to introduce into the church for the purpose of rendering the doctrine of Scripture ambiguous and destitute of all certainty and firmness. Let us know that the true meaning of Scripture is the genuine and simple one. And let us embrace and hold it tightly. Let us boldly set aside as deadly corruptions those fictitious expositions which lead us away from the literal sense. Now, I love those statements from Calvin. I mean, what a straightforward, bold, clear statement about how we should actually approach the Scriptures. Let the Bible speak for itself with its own literary cues. Always a literal perspective unless there are clues in the context which show that not only something is symbolic, but how you ought to interpret that symbol. That's the way the Bible works. That's the way really any piece of literature works. This is the genuine and simple hermeneutic. I say amen to Calvin's words. However... Calvin himself sometimes practiced an allegorical hermeneutic, especially when it came to Israel. Listen to part of a sermon from Calvin on Amos 9. Actually, why don't you look at the passage yourself? If you have your Bible close to you, you want to use the View Bible, turn to Amos 9. I want you to read the passage that Calvin's about to give comment on so that we can consider for ourselves what the meaning is in context. This is Amos 9, and we're going to Read starting from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Amos 9, 11 to 15. This is what the scripture says. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Oh, I should tell you, in that day, previously, the author has just told us that the day in mind is the day in which Israel has been judged for its apostasy. In that day... We now hear in verse 11, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, that is Yahweh, who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says Yahweh, your God. Now, just consider that all by itself. Ask yourself, don't have to answer this out loud. What is this passage about? What is God promising? To whom is God promising it? Take a moment to come to a preliminary conclusion. Now with that firmly in mind, let's hear Calvin's take. 
here, the prophet describes the felicity which shall be under the reign of Christ. And we know that whenever the prophets set forth promises of a happy and prosperous state to God's people, they adopt metaphorical expressions and say that abundance of all good things shall flow, that there shall be the most fruitful produce, that provisions shall be bountifully supplied. For they accommodated their mode of speaking to the notions of that ancient people. It is therefore no wonders if they sometimes speak to them as to children. At the same time, the Spirit, under these figurative expressions, declares that the kingdom of Christ shall in every way be happy and blessed, or that the church of God, which means the same thing, shall be blessed when Christ shall begin to reign. Further, what is here said of the abundance of corn and wine must be explained with reference to the nature of Christ's kingdom. As in the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, it is enough for us that it abounds in spiritual blessings. And the Jews, whom God reserved for himself as a remnant, were satisfied with this spiritual abundance. If anyone objects and says that the prophet does not speak here allegorically, the answer is ready at hand, even this, that it is a manner of speaking everywhere found in Scripture. That happy state is painted, as it were, before our eyes by setting before us the conveniences of the present life and earthly blessings. This may especially be observed in the prophets, for they accommodated their style, as we have already stated, to the capacities of a rude and weak people. All right, let's make sure we understand this. According to Calvin, why did God have to use expressions about literal corn and wine instead of just telling the Israelites about the spiritual blessings they will one, time, one day receive? They were rude and weak, which is another way to say what? They were too ignorant, stupid, and sinful to understand otherwise. Which is kind of a strange assertion. For multiple reasons. First, did not Calvin tell us in his other work that the simple meaning is the genuine meaning of Scripture? All over the Scripture? But now he tells us in this sermon that the people of Amos' time were too simple to understand the simple meaning. So paradoxically, God had to make it more complex by making it symbolic and even inaccurate without an understanding of New Testament realities. The meaning of the text here, according to Calvin, is not the simple meaning, which would, we could also simply call the literal meaning. He says it's allegorical. And in anticipation of those objecting to an allegorical interpretation, what main defense does Calvin offer? I mean, certainly he's asserting his opinion, and Calvin's a pretty smart guy. He's a faithful preacher, so, I mean, there's a lot to say for that. I mean, uh, certainly he does, but that's not what he says here. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Calvin, listen to me. He points to something else. Yeah, Dwayne. 
That's right. He says we know this is the proper interpretation as allegory because there are plenty of other allegories in the Scripture, especially in the prophets, which is kind of a funny thing to say. He defends allegory by saying we know other passages of the Old Testament are allegorical too. But how do we know that those passages are allegorical? Certainly he would not appeal to this passage saying, well, that one's allegorical too. He's assuming something here about passages in the Old Testament. And it's a bit of circular reasoning. Now, I'm not merely trying to tear down Calvin here. I love Calvin. I'm so grateful for the Lord for Calvin. He was a faithful preacher and expositor. Great reformer. But what I do hope that you see, just by bringing this up, is that we can, you can, recognize the evil, the danger of the allegorical hermeneutic, and nonetheless actually use it yourself. You can be inconsistent in implying a little hermeneutic to the scripture. As we discussed, this allegorical hermeneutic, its origin is not the Bible, the apostles. It comes from Greek culture, Greek philosophy. Calvin himself claimed this, and he said it's hurt the church so much across the centuries. Now, someone may ask, but wait, I've studied the Bible a little bit. Didn't the apostles in the New Testament sometimes use the Old Testament allegorically? Didn't they sometimes take things out of context and interpret them figuratively, even applying them to Christ? Did they sometimes find a deeper spiritual meaning in passages that appeared to be talking about only literal things? Well, that is a hotly debated question in evangelicalism today. I would say the short answer to that question is, no, that's not what the apostles did. It sometimes looks like they did that, seems like they did that, but if we look more carefully at what they did, we'll see that in certain places, the apostles were doing something different than we expect with an Old Testament passage, but they were not interpreting it allegorically. They sometimes were making a comparison between what was a reality in the Old Testament and something that's appearing in the life of Jesus or in the New Testament, They were highlighting a continuation of a general principle from the Old Testament into the New Testament, explaining further the significance of an Old Testament passage in light of New Testament reality. But they weren't interpreting it allegorically. Oftentimes we get tripped up by this because we say, if he's citing the Old Testament, he must be saying, that's a literal prophecy that's being fulfilled now. And a lot of times that is true. But that's not always what the apostles are doing. They sometimes are doing something else with the Old Testament, and we need to be ready for that. And when we are, then we see, oh, they're not taking it out of context. They're just doing something a little unexpected. Whatever the apostles are doing with the Old Testament, they never annul, contradict, or change the originally intended meaning of the Old Testament writer. And that's the short answer. If you want a longer answer to that question of how the apostles use the Old Testament, or if you have a question about a particular passage, I'll have to talk about that after class or in another setting um, because it it will take a lot of time. I'm happy to talk about that. I do believe that this is something that we can have an answer to. I would commend to you also a particular resource. I don't have it on the slide, but I love the work and writings of Dr. Michael Vlock. Dr. Michael Vlock, he was one of my teachers at the Master's Seminary. He's actually not at the seminary anymore. I think he's teaching somewhere else. He did a talk at the 2012 Shepherds Conference entitled, Not Up for Discussion. Did the apostles take the Old Testament out of context? Not up for discussion. Did the apostles take the Old Testament out of context? I think that's a very helpful crash course for dealing with this issue and really arguing against the apostles setting forth an allegorical hermeneutic for Christians to use. 
But beyond that, I think any of Dr. Block's work would be really profitable for you to read. Yeah, he's done a lot on eschatology and the kingdom and the New Testament use of the Old Testament. I think you would find any of his work very helpful and clarifying. He's not, even though he's a scholar, professor, he writes in a very clear way and makes it understandable even for people who are not seminarians. So I think you'll find him helpful. But to come back to my main point, the allegorical hermeneutic always leads away from what the scripture actually says to eisegesis because it either ignores the originally intended meaning of a passage as unimportant or it annuls that originally intended meaning as obsolete. Oh, that's just the literal meaning. We're way past that now. The Bible becomes about what we wanted to say rather than what God said. But God will hold us accountable for what he actually said, not what we pretend that he said. He holds us accountable to believe it, to practice, and to teach it. Now, to drive this home just a little bit more, if we recognize the danger of the allegorical hermeneutic, then why do we sometimes practice it even today? Why do we interpret the creation account of Genesis 1-2 to to be symbolic of some evolutionary construct or to be some non-specific account of how God created the world? Why are we afraid to, assert, to affirm the simple meaning of the passage? It presents itself as history. Why do we not affirm that by instead standing back and saying, oh, I don't really know what it means. Could be symbolic. Could be literal. I'm not sure. I think this is a compromise. Why do we explain all the passages about, explain away all the passages about God's restoration of Israel? Those which could not literally have been fulfilled yet, but essentially mean nothing if they're merely symbolic and spiritual, somehow applied metaphorically to Christ and his church. Why do we even go so far as to say, and some evangelical scholars say this, that some or all of the accounts of Jesus' miracles are not to be taken literally, but as symbols allegories of a greater theological reality. I'll give you one example of this. Many scholars today will say that the earthquake and the raising of the dead from their tombs when Jesus died on the cross, as recorded in Matthew 27, verses 50 to 54, didn't literally happen. That wouldn't be reasonable. I mean, wouldn't it be so weird? Like, all these people come to Jerusalem, like nobody else is talking about this. It must be allegorical of how Jesus brings new life to all who believe in him. Allegorical hermeneutic is still around. And we feel pressure to adopt it. Even though, in other contexts, we say, no, 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 the literal meaning. We go to a few places in the Bible, like origins, like eschatology, or like hot-button issues in our culture, or just what we think is not reasonable, what the culture thinks is not reasonable, and we say, oh, 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 it's just symbolic. Actually, the same thing happened in the early church. Problematic passages in the Bible, things that the world, the culture, particularly had problems with, a lot of Christians dealt with that by saying, oh, it's only symbolic. It's the same thing that the Greeks did with their stories about the gods. Say, yeah, yeah, that was really immoral, what those gods did, but it's just symbolic. Oh, yeah, God's saying that the Israelites were to annihilate whole wicked peoples. Yeah, I know, that's kind of crazy. It's symbolic. 
That's what they said. Some of them, anyways. We don't want to fall into that same mistake. I urge you, brethren, if you allegorize or spiritualize parts of the Bible, please carefully examine why you do so and whether you're really justified in doing so. It isn't more intellectual to do this, it's not more spiritual to do this, and it's not the apostolic pattern. How instead should we interpret the Bible the same way we analyze any other serious piece of literature? Study the grammar, study the book's context, study the context of the entire Bible, become familiar with the historical situation of the original audience, and based on those clues, based on your careful observations of the text and its context, come up with an argument for the author's originally intended meaning. This is the literal hermeneutic. This is what's also called the historical grammatical hermeneutic. It's what we practice in this church. It's the right way to interpret the scriptures. If you don't use this way, you're going to fall into error. Maybe not so serious, maybe very serious. So fall into error in your theology, fall into error in your Christian life, your application of the scriptures. Now don't misunderstand, I've got to say this, there are figurative sections of the Bible. I'm not contradicting that. A proper little hermeneutic doesn't assume that there's no such thing as figurative language in the Bible, but it looks for clues from the author in the Bible before we determine that something is figurative. The passage will present itself as being figurative. You don't have to force that into the text. And it's amazing that when you look for clues in the text about something being figurative or symbolic, and you actually see it, the text is very straightforward about how to interpret that symbol. And sometimes it's, it's almost hilarious how simple it is. You know, one of the prophets will look at something in a vision, and he'll be like, man, what do these things mean? And the angel's like, are you wondering what these things mean? Let me tell you. That's how you know, oftentimes, that something is figurative in the Bible. Things like that. All right. To come back and finish with origin. Not only did origin's allegorizing create problems in his own theology, but it also influenced Christian theological interpretation for many years afterwards. Alexandria would remain the bastion of allegorical interpretation, the center that promoted it. But not everyone in the pre-Nicaea church subscribed to this style of interpretation. Antioch in Syria and its theological school came to represent the opposite interpretive point of view. They championed the simple, literal, unless otherwise indicated by the text, hermeneutic, historical grammatical exegesis. These two schools of interpretation would continue to argue and rival with one another going into the medieval period. But unfortunately, it would be the allegorical interpretation that would become dominant during the medieval period. And uh, it's really the reformers coming at the end of the medieval period that did a lot to recover the straightforward hermeneutic. So what to think about Origen? He was a great heretic fighter and an intelligent theologian, but he nonetheless left us some harmful legacies both in his heretical theological speculations and the popularization of the allegorical hermeneutic. Well, having discussed origin and allegory, let's come back now and finish talking about the question that I raised for you, or rather the um, second-century apologists and polemical fathers raised for us last week. How should Christians engage with the unbelieving cultures in which they live? We've seen how different theologians in the 2nd and 3rd centuries had responded to this question. And we saw some of the problems that resulted on 
the stances they took. We have Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen on one side, who saw value in making use of and even integrating ideas popular in the world, world culture, for the sake of the gospel and for the betterment of Christianity. We've got them on the one side. And then on the other side, we have Tatian, the Syrian, and Tertullian, who saw the world's ideas and even pleasures as pollutions, distractions that need to be confronted, that need to be repudiated for the sake of Christ and the church. On the first side, accommodating worldly wisdom led to Greco-Roman philosophical ideas and hermeneutics getting tied up in Christianity with the worst manifestation in the eisegetical allegories and the heretical speculations of origin. On the other side, overzealousness and rejecting worldly influence led Tatian to found a legalistic cult. And Tertullian, he ended up supporting a group of ascetic Christian false prophets towards the end of his life. So what about us? What should we do? Should we look to find good in world culture? Or should we just separate from it? Well, to more confidently answer that question, we can't simply look at church history. We need to go back to God's perfect and authoritative word. Think about the Bible. Does the Bible instruct us to make use of what's in the world or to separate from the world? You know what the answer is? It's both. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. And when you go too far to one side or the other, that's when you run into heresy and error. Jesus describes the way to life in his Sermon on the Mount as a narrow way which few find. And I think narrow way is a good metaphor for a lot of the Christian life and even what we're talking about. There is a biblical way of engaging with the world. It's goods, it's ideas, but it's a narrow way. And one in which it's very easy to drift far, too far to the left, your left, or too far to the right. Consider a very intriguing exhortation from Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Why don't you open your Bibles and go there? 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. This is where Paul says something to Timothy about drinking wine. 1 Timothy 5, 23. Do you note the context whenever you turn there, whenever you arrive there. The context of 1 Timothy 5.23. In verses 17 to 25, Paul is talking about honoring elders who lead well in the church, but also rebuking elders who miss the mark, who live a hypocritical life. And notice in verse 22, which comes right before the verse I'm about to read to you, What does does Paul call on Timothy to do in his own life? Keep himself pure. Timothy, you're a leader. You're appointing leaders. They need to be pure. You need to make sure that you're appointing pure people. But you yourself need to be pure. That's a good exhortation. But then notice what comes next. Verse 23. We can read that now. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Okay, now ask yourself, considering the context we just noted, 
why would Timothy be avoiding drinking wine? Only drinking water. If wine, that is fermented grape juice mixed with water, if that was the common drink of the time, why would he only be drinking water and never wine? Exactly. This is not a random aside. It's exactly connected to what Paul was just talking about. Timothy, you need to keep yourself pure. And I know you're trying to keep yourself pure even when it comes to alcohol. You don't want to drink wine at all. And we can understand why Timothy would want to do this, even though the Bible never forbids drinking wine. Actually, wine is commended as an enjoyable gift from God in Ecclesiastes. Yes, the wine was a little bit different back then than it is today. But it's commended as a gift from God and is actually prescribed as part of celebrating the Lord's Supper. You got the bread and you got the wine. We use grape juice today. It's really a form of the same thing. But it would be a little bit fermented when they drank it. It'd be a very diluted form of wine. That was prescribed. So even though the Bible doesn't forbid drinking wine, with what are wine and other types of alcohol, the drinking of alcohol, often associated in the Bible? Drunkenness? What else? Yeah, the carousing lifestyle that's associated with that, the immoral, the indulgent lifestyle that goes with drinking and parties. Also, alcohol addiction. One of the qualifications of elders is that they not be too much addicted to wine, what we would call alcoholism today. Timothy sees these dangers. These sinful ways of using wine are forbidden in the Bible. No doubt many believers in the New Testament church were saved out of that kind of living. Timothy wants to set a good example for them. He says, I'm not going to drink wine at all. He's been acting out of noble, noble motives, strong convictions, What's the problem that Paul notes? It's happened to Timothy. Yeah, he's getting sick. He's having frequent stomach problems. And Paul says it comes from your drinking only water. Now, why would drinking only water result in stomach problems? Probably say that's pretty healthy. He's not drinking soda. He's drinking only water. That's a good thing. Paul, what's what's going on? Why would it be a problem? probably related to not having fully clean water at that time, especially if you lived in cities or or towns. Unless there was a spring that was not being affected by any sort of manufacturing or other human activity, it's going to get dirty. Wine was often safer to drink than water. If you drank only water, well, it seemed to result in stomach problems. Why, according to Paul, would a little wine be helpful? It would help with the stomach. It would help with Timothy's frequent ailments. Now notice, in verse 23, Paul specifies a little wine, really for medicinal purposes. So this is not an endorsement of uncontrolled alcoholic consumption or even a promotion of social drinking. This is a careful and loving word of counsel to someone whose well-motivated convictions are causing unnecessary harm in his life, in his own life. Paul says, it's okay. I know you want to be pure, but it's okay to drink a little bit of wine, and it will help you with your frequent stomach ailments. Now, here's an important question. Where did Paul get this knowledge that a little wine would be helpful for Timothy's stomach? (laughs) Um, Proverbs talks about 
wine being enjoyable, I think, in, in one or two Proverbs, but doesn't necessarily talk about it being healthy. Uh, Steve mentioned Dr. Luke. That's quite possible. <laughs> Certainly, this is not an idea that comes directly from the Bible. There's no place in the Bible that says a little wine is good for the stomach. I mean, other than this, obviously. He is speaking by the Holy Spirit here, so we could say, oh, we got it from God. In one sense, that's true. But in terms of a direct avenue of practical wisdom, he didn't get it from the Bible. He got it, maybe via Luke, but he got it from world culture. It was considered common knowledge in the culture of the time that a little bit of wine was healthy for a person to drink. And this wisdom, this very practical wisdom, it came about by simple experimentation and observation. Hey, Joe over there, he's had stomach problems for a while, but since he started to drink wine in addition to water, he's been doing better. Who would have thought? A little bit of fermented grape juice juice has some health benefits. This had become common knowledge in the culture of that time. So why is this all significant for what we're talking about today here at the end of the class? Because it's an example of Paul, by the Holy Spirit, applying knowledge gained from outside the Bible to the benefit of a Christian. Knowledge gained from the world culture. Now, Paul hasn't accepted everything that the world culture has had to say about wine. Um, Plenty of people in the world culture would say, hey, getting drunk with wine is one of the best uses of your time. Paul didn't accept that. But he did find something useful in what world culture had to say about drinking wine for a medical benefit. He saw something useful, something good for believers from the culture. And you know what? That's just one example. There is a lot of knowledge available outside the Bible, which you might say comes from the world, comes from experts in the world, that is useful for believers. I think you understand this. Science, medicine, technology, a lot of that's not in the Bible, but it's useful. It's a benefit to believers. More specifically, know-how for speaking well, how to run efficient meetings, how to set up good family traditions. A lot of specific information about these topics, not in the Bible, but you do find it in the world, and you know what? It's helpful for Christians. Or how about this? The study of history, even church history. That's not in the Bible. I mean, there is history in the Bible. But church history is not in the Bible, not after the apostles. But we're studying it in this class. Why? Because it's beneficial. It's beneficial for you as believers. And those are just some examples. When it comes to so-called worldly enjoyments, things that the culture might value and pursue, the Bible not only allows for many of these things, but it commends them if pursued in a godly way. We're told in Ecclesiastes to enjoy food, enjoy drink, enjoy work, enjoy wealth, enjoy companionship as gifts from God. In Song of Solomon, married persons are encouraged to enjoy their romantic and sexual love. A lot of people think, oh, that's worldly. Oh, oh, that's so fleshly. No, it's a gift from God. Sometimes we are tempted to think that physical things, things that the world loves, are evil, 
you know where that really comes from? Greek philosophical dualism, <laughs> inherited from Plato and others, and the frequent abuses of God's gifts in our society. You see how people use things sinfully? We say, oh, oh, we've got to get away from that totally. It's not what the scriptures teach. There are many gifts that God has given us in the world that are good. They are to be enjoyed in thankful worship to God, just as Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 4.3 and 1 Timothy 6.17. Solomon goes so far to say in Ecclesiastes 6, Ecclesiastes 6, 1 to 6, that a life without the enjoyment of God's gifts, God's good things, is a wasted life and not even worth living. So that's all true. Yet we know there are limits to how we can enjoy what's in the world or use the knowledge that it offers. We cannot enjoy food, drink, work, wealth, or companionship in sinful ways. We know the world often does that. The Bible specifically warns us about going after those things the way the world does. Not just because they do it sinfully, but they do it idolatrously. They become their ultimate treasures, their chief concerns. But God says, no, I'm your chief treasure. I'm your chief concern. Pursue me, not the things of the world. We are to remain content in whatever measure we have the passing gifts of the world because Christ is all that we need. In fact, individually, we will need to analyze and decide when and how to cut ourselves off from the enjoyment of certain gifts because they lead us too much into temptation. They lead us too easily into idolatry. We want to cut off those things that easily entangle us. That's not something that we command for the whole church. You need to do exactly what I do in this area, but we do need to come to that individually. And you might have to do something different than someone else does. So we know there's a limitation. And even when it comes to ideas, we know that much of what the world has to offer us, what the culture has to offer us, it is knowledge falsely so-called. It is Wisdom that does not come from above, it comes from below. It is useless, sinful, and even demonic. Far from accommodating this kind of thinking from the world, trying to use it, we need to confront it as evil and call for repentance. As true or useful as certain ideas are from the world, we know from Romans 1, Ephesians 4, Jeremiah 17, 9, that the world and its thinking is fundamentally hostile to God and broken. It is a futile way of thinking, generally speaking. It is sick. It will always come up short in the knowledge of God, of holy living, and of salvation. We, instead, must guard the truth the supreme wisdom which has already been given to us. And we are to live accordingly. That is the charge from Paul. That is the charge from Peter. We are to refresh our minds daily in God's true wisdom and not allow ourselves to be conformed into the vain thinking of our world, no matter how wise it seems, no matter how popular it becomes. Perhaps you say, Pastor Dave, you're just saying things that are contradictory. You're telling me to do two different things at the same time. Well, they sound different and contradictory, but really they fit together. The biblical way of responding to world culture is neither integration nor isolation. It is careful use and zealous separation at the same time. You might say, well, that sounds good in theory. 
But what, is stance, what does such a stance look like practically? <clears throat> to be sure, remaining on the narrow way when it comes to engaging with world culture is much easier said than done. We probably won't always get it right. And when we find ourselves straying too far on one side or the other, we need to repent, come back to the biblical place. But I think there are a few biblical principles that I can give to you, just mention to you at the end of this class today, that will help you a little bit in thinking through, can I use this or do I need to abstain from it? Can I participate in this or do I just need to separate from it? And I've given those to you on the slide above there. I give you these principles in the form of three questions to ask. Number one, does something contradict the Bible, either in the Bible's specific commands or general principles? If yes, you can't use it. If no, it's okay. Obviously, Christ is our supreme authority, which makes his word the supreme authority. So if God and man contradict, we go with God. Let God be found true and every man be found a liar, says Paul in Romans 3.4. We trust the scriptures over the greatest discoveries, advice, maxims of men in our culture. That being said, we do want to make sure that something actually contradicts the Bible before we utterly reject and condemn it. Sometimes zealous Christians are too quick here, have been too quick here. But if something does truly contradict the Bible, we can't use it. If it doesn't, we can but loosely, without becoming too attached. You may get some counsel from the world, and you say, hey, you know, that seems like good advice. doesn't contradict anything in the Bible. And later, people are like, oh, actually, we were wrong about that. Can't be devastated by such things. Again, Ecclesiastes tells us, the knowledge, knowledge in the world is vaporous. You think you've got your grasp on something, and it turns out you don't. You've got to be ready for that. But that doesn't mean that you can't use anything that you see in the world. Some things, if they don't contradict the Bible... They can be useful for you. But along with that, number two, another question I ask is, does it rest on an anti-biblical foundation? Does it rest on an anti-biblical foundation? If yes, you can't use it. If no, you can, but loosely. loosely. And by this question, I don't mean, does this come from non-believers? Because that would invalidate everything, or almost everything. But rather, I mean, is a certain idea or practice reliant on assumptions that contradict what the Bible teaches. They assume certain things in order to make this practice work or make this idea work that actually the Bible says are not true. Because sometimes you and I will see ideas or practices in the world that don't seem bad in and of themselves. Hey, that doesn't seem sinful. The Bible doesn't say you can't do that. But if you look further and you detect an anti-biblical rationale driving it, you need to reject it. You need to stay far away from it. You're not going to find benefit. Christians all too often are determined to salvage certain things from the world that rest on an anti-biblical foundation. But when they do this, they inadvertently import certain anti-biblical ideas into their lives and into their theology. I would assert that this is happening all too often when it comes to the findings of psychologists, evolutionary scientists, and social justice advocates. People in these areas, they make true observations about the world, even useful observations. But where they have theories or conclusions that rest on anti-biblical assumptions, 
You can't salvage what comes from that. You're going to be forced to adopt, to accept, to some level, those anti-biblical notions. So don't say, hey, you know, this thing is totally wrong. It's wrestling into biblical foundation, but we're going to salvage it. No, you're not going to find any use from that. You're just going to hurt yourself, and you're going to hurt the church. So the second question to ask is, does it rely, does it rest on anti-biblical assumptions? If it does, stay away from it. If it doesn't, it's open to your use. Then finally, number three, does something claim to be necessary for an aspect of life that the Bible already claims authoritative sufficiency? Does something claim to be necessary when the Bible says, I already speak sufficiently on this? God says, I already speak sufficiently on this. Let's face it, the Bible doesn't claim to be an exhaustive encyclopedia or a scientific textbook. But when it comes to fundamental wisdom, holy living, salvation, the health and happiness of the soul or the inner man, the Bible needs no supplement. It already claims, I speak, God says, I speak authoritatively on these issues. We already have all that we need, according to 2 Peter 1, verses 1, the 3 to 4, we have all that we need for life and godliness. So if someone or something comes along outside of the scriptures and says, oh, you need this to be happy. You need this to be holy. You need this to be a proper evangelist for the gospel. Don't believe it. Don't buy it. If you do, it's just going to trip you up. But if something instead presents itself as good, but not necessary, you know what? That may actually be profitable. Hey, you don't need this to share the gospel, but it can be helpful. You don't need this to properly raise your kids, but it can be useful. There's something that's open to your use. When something presents itself as necessary, that's a red flag. Especially if it's an area that the Bible explicitly says, no, I already speak sufficiently on this. I already show you what you need for life and godliness. Fundamental wisdom, you're not going to find it in the world. All the wisdom, all true wisdom is found and summed up in Jesus Christ. So if you think there's some secret out there for how to live your life fundamentally that the Bible doesn't talk about, you're going to be disappointed. That's what Ecclesiastes speaks against. But if something is not presenting itself as necessary, but perhaps useful. It's something you can look into. <clears throat> Much more we could say on this broad issue, but I just wanted to give you something before we finish class today. One question then to ask yourself as we close is regarding this issue. Do you, does your family, does this church remain on the narrow way when it comes to engagement with the culture? Are there aspects of your life in which you have accepted things from the world which you ought not to? You've drifted too much into worldly thinking. You've adopted things you shouldn't adopt. Is that true in certain areas of your life? And are there aspects of your life where you have rejected things from the world and in the world that you didn't have to reject? You just made your life harder by doing so. This is easy for very zealous Christians to do. Is this something that you're doing? What areas are you doing that in? Think about what the scriptures say. Think about what we see play out even in the second and third centuries of the church. Church, pray to the Lord about it. Talk to your brethren about it. And proceed onward in holiness and wisdom. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, we thank you that you are our sufficient wisdom. And yet you've given common grace. You have allowed us to have good things, even discover additional things in the world that are not stated directly in your scripture. Yet, God, it is so easy for us to go to those things in the improper way, to hold on to them, to adopt them, even when they contradict your scripture. And yet it's also easy to unnecessarily separate from those things and, and fall into a kind of legalism. Lord, we need help. We need your guidance. We need your shepherding. And we know we get that from your word. Lord, help us as a church and also individually, Lord, to know how to walk wisely in the world but not of the world. To not become too confrontational nor too conciliatory. Lord, where we are willing to call out what is evil and useless, but also willing to use what is good and helpful. Lord, as, as your gifts, as your help to us. Pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with the rest of the service today, that we may continue to grow and also worship you sincerely. In Jesus' name, amen.